I've got two guests this week, which uh, I don't always, but I think we have uh, enough topics to to make sense of it. One is Jason Ang, who is sitting in front of me in real life. Hi, Jason. Hello. You're a photographer. You've been here before. We talk about photography stuff sometimes. Absolutely. Thanks for having me again. And then I've also got Rob Mitchelson on Skype, who is not only my resident Star Wars expert, but also a photographer, filmmaker, musician, multi-talented guy that uh, knows how to make things that are creative and cool. Hey, Rob. Hey, Tyler. How you doing? I'm glad we could all have this little chat because there's there's so much to go over in so little time. So let's uh, let's not waste any. Let's jump into it. I want to first talk about myself and my camera gear that I've been switching and purchasing and selling and why I made some of these big life-altering decisions. Uh, and then you guys can tell me whether I was right or wrong about it. And then uh, I want to talk about Star Wars. So the the whole second half of this is going to be spoilers right from the get-go. But um, if you have not seen The Rise of Skywalker, now is the time. Uh, you know, Hit pause partway through this, go see it, and then we're going to dive right in. But first, uh, well, what's in my hand right now is a brand new camera that is um, not new to the rest of the world. But I finally took the dive and got a Canon EOS R. It's, it's one of those cameras that came out... Everybody really hated on it and has come full circle to be, I feel like, like the hot camera of 2019, especially on YouTube. There are so many YouTubers putting out like why I switched to the EOS R videos. And you know what? They got to me. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll talk about some of the details, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I sold my A7 III, which I enjoyed. There are many, I have a lot of good things to say about it. Uh, Jason here is a Sony shooter, so I'm sure he can attest to the the good things. Yeah, but, um, a- a- absolutely. Yeah, it was I, was, time. I was actually surprised that you switched to the camera. I mean, it is the first iteration of their mirrorless full frame. Well, so I'm not one to jump in to something that is completely unproven because I need it to work in in day to day, sort of from the beginning. And when they're like, "Look, we got a whole new lens system. We have a whole new." Uh, everything system everything is new with this the whole interface is different the the, ch- the chassis is, is redesigned from the ground up i'm like you know what i'm gonna let other people figure out if this is right or wrong and i'll wait for the professional version and the, the time of year that it is which it's december 2019 i kind of should still be waiting in a way like the next one is the camera for me the eos r is very in between professional and hobbyist in a way that it used to be actually the 5D used to be considered a prosumer camera. And I don't think it is anymore. I think it's graduated to it as a very widely used professional camera. And now this is kind of, this feels very prosumer to me. But basically I was just seeing so many people do really fantastic work on it. And it had some trade-offs that I really liked, especially color. That was like, that was the final straw. That was what made me switch is creating a really long video project and having a lot of issues with making the colors look good. And I I just felt like I couldn't wait anymore (laughs) because I put videos out on a regular basis. So I wanted to uh, really improve things. Well, I think you did. I mean, every time I see somebody talking about an EOS R, I'm tempted to make the switch. But I just also, I was just saying earlier that I don't have have a reason to because I've got a 5D Mark III that points and shoots and does what it's supposed to do. That doesn't mean that I'm not really 
I don't find it really appealing to do have a, like an autofocus field that covers the entire sensor rather than just like a really narrow section in the center. And I, I'm a glasses wearer. Tyler, you are. Jason, are you a glasses wearer? We're all wearing glasses right now. Freshly. I've had glasses for <laughs> six months. Getting used to it. Getting used to it. Yeah. So, I mean, for, for me, one of the things that is challenging about uh, a camera with iffy autofocus is that you can't get that you can't get that nice quick shot out of the way and have your camera take a good guess for you and i think that some of the older canon stuff does a nice job but like having the entire sensor covered with autofocus points seems really appealing to me yeah this was what made me know that i wanted mirrorless from when it was first introduced just the idea of you know the a7 series having good quick focus but that it is accurate to the focus plane of the camera. And I've been talking about this since cameras or whatever on the other podcast. There's quite a few episodes of me getting excited about this for the first time before anybody was shooting with them. And I still am excited about it because on any DSLR, you have two different focusing systems or two different sensors, I should say. The focusing sensors are lower resolution and simpler. So they're really good at extremely fast focus. But if there's any discrepancy between how they judge distance and the sensor of the the image sensor like the thing taking the photo if they are different in any way you can wind up with out of focus images reliably all like all your photos can be back focused front focused <laughs> and it can be different on every single lens there's many ways that it can go wrong but effectively once we go to mirrorless since it is the image sensor that is detecting what should be sharp and what isn't if it thinks it's sharp then it it's kind of right it can still get things wrong in other ways. There's other ways for it to fail, but in that one specific, very important way, it's way more accurate, and I've really appreciated that. I agree. The technology is there with it being all in the sensor. The only issue that I have with mirrorless cameras at this moment is kind of like what Rob was saying before. Is like uh, the, he, he's shooting a Canon 5D Mark III, mm-hmm. and it's a tank. Uh, you snap the shutter, and and you know that it's there all, all of the time. With the mirrorless camera, when the 5D R came out, I started. I picked one up and I started shooting somebody walking and it has the same, what I feel to be issues of tracking people is when you're shooting and you're moving at the same time, it's kind of like a spray and pray mentality mm-hmm. for, for, for <laughs> shooting action. It, it doesn't, it, it almost makes you feel a little bit ill because with a DSLR, you know when you have it, it's just there, you know you've got that moment. And that it's not that it's a blackout, but there's something digitally going on. It's processing, you're, you're dealing with the digital readout of what's happening. And even if it's a, a millisecond or whatever that time length is, there's something that feels unnatural about tracking people on a mirrorless camera, which is probably my... Uh, yeah, that's what it sounds like. There's our, there's our R going. It just feels unnatural. Yeah, it, it's a weird shutter sound. It's a lot quieter. And I mean, there's no mirror moving, right? That's so much of the sound is a huge mirror flapping up and down, as well as the shutter going up and down. So you get, it's by default a little bit quieter. I, you know, it doesn't sound as satisfying. But the thing is, it just ends up working better. The best example of it is the Sony A9. I mean, I still love that camera. I only shot with it for a week, but you get hooked on it pretty quick. So when you're shooting in burst mode on silent, it uh, it doesn't have the really bad electronic shutter issues that some other cameras do where you get weird um, right. bending lines and stuff. Everything's still perfectly sharp, but it's shooting at 20 whatever frames per second, frames a second. And they're all, they're all sharp and they're all in focus because it's tracking the whole time. And there's no sound and there's no blackout. So when you're looking through the viewfinder or the on the screen either one there's nothing is disappearing you're just seeing a live view 
and there is like an icon that indicates like shutter, shutter, shutter. Like it, there's a, a white box around the whole thing and it's right. flickering on and off. That's all that indicates that the photos are being taken. And then you have to review them to be like, wait, did it shoot anything or not? I don't know. But, it, you know, it was doing just as good of a job. There's all, there's all these things about going to mirrorless that mean we're letting go of securities from the olden days, like this, the, this reassuring sound of a mirror slap or the size as well. If you're doing client work, that size is actually a, a helpful thing sometimes in selling your client to think that you have spent good money on your gear. Right. It's true. Um, I don't know. There's all, there's all these little elements about it, but yeah, the obvious improvements are a multitude, but at the same time, so I bought this, but I'm keeping the 5D4. I sold the Sony a7 III and I'm still going to be using the 5D4. I imagine often as my primary stills camera, but I'll be really curious if this suddenly becomes the more often one just because it's so much smaller. Uh, it'd be and the same sensor, same images. It'll be, in, it'll be interesting to see how you feel after a month of it. Uh, when I jumped ship, I completely jumped ship. And now when I go back to a, a DSLR, I, I know what the difference is immediately. Well, what's your background again? Like, what did you switch from and to? Uh, so I had a 1DX briefly, and I had a 1DS, I mean, primarily at the same time. And, and the 1DX just, res- there wasn't enough resolution from... 16? I think 18. it was 18. Okay. I think I had the second iteration of that or maybe it was the first it was the first correct um but i i just feel like canon right now is is in a confused place between the m this new mount <laughs> and the ef okay and, yes and and i and i couldn't commit to that i mean when i when you first got it i was kind of like why and looking at it today it looks better it's grown on me since i've seen it four days ago and it does feel like it's in a very middle ground places as, as far as not being pro and not being consumer it's somewhere in the middle but we're seeing right now at a two thousand dollar price point it's not that it's throwaway but it kind of is for a two-year camera i mean you, you would expect to use it for a couple years and then and then get rid of it after it's got a half a million frames on it or whatever that number is but the thing that um is really scary is i mean they've come out with some really beautiful glass mm-hmm. and, and really fast glass mm-hmm. but it's so expensive i, I mean you can buy the body for two thousand but then you have to put four thousand dollars into a lens that's the trend these days sony's glass is pretty expensive too there's yes. a lot of pricey gas right glass out there pricey gas pricey gas tell me about the pricey gas yeah but th- so okay but also let's talk about what motivated this specifically was was mostly about video the stills i think in raw images you can move them in any direction you want to the point where they can match. Like the quality is completely there in them. You're not losing something by shooting Sony or Canon when it comes to stills. Um, A lot of that is taste and what feels right for you. If you're looking at other people's work, you'll never spot which one they're on ever. Any adjustments that they make to the image far outweigh what the camera is actually doing itself. But when it comes to video, that is not the case at all. And we did some tests uh, with Jason's studio the other day where I was just comparing some of the different color profiles on the Sony and to the one color profile on Canon, which is C-Log. And most of the Sony ones looked super weird. The only one that didn't was Cine 2, which um, I've used on a lot of YouTube videos. It is the most contrasty. So you don't get that really extended dynamic range look. It's just kind of low contrast. Um, it doesn't give you the same look as S-Log or HLG, which that's what I was using most recently is HLG. But I'll post these photos in the show notes and you can just see this like this crazy color shift where if you don't have the Canon as a reference, looking at the HLG and the S-Log Sonys, they look, they look weird. The color of your shirt, the blue of your shirt is 
not at all what it was in real life. Your lips are relatively pink compared to your skin turning a bit green. Just all these things that I just, I can't. If you don't have a reference photo, it's really hard to edit towards it and to get back to that super neutral place. Whereas the S-Log out of a Canon, it's dead simple. Like you just turn up the saturation and the contrast and it looks, it looks great. I think it makes sense for you considering you have the C200 and that's what you shoot on. I mean, knowing that different different camera companies have different colors. Mm-hmm. If you're going from Canon to Canon and you need a, a super B-roll or location shooter this and you can match it to the colors just knowing that the sensor came from the same factory. Yeah, I can literally set them both to the exact same color profile, which is a lot easier to match than the guesswork I was doing before. Right. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, I haven't had a chance to shoot in either S-Log or C-Log because my camera's now so old school that it's like, you get high def in, in one tonal range. You know? They used to be pretty amazing. I mean, I was always impressed by what came out of it, but there was also a lot of like, there was a limited amount of range to do work with it afterwards. And I, I think the both these camera companies are really trying, it seems, trying quite hard to give you that flexibility afterwards, but it, they still seem to... Uh, I'm not sure if I'm using the right word if I say like a suffer from, but back in my film school days, you could tell if somebody was shooting on a Sony, mm-hmm. like you just let that's a Sony for sure. And like, this is, this is going back to like digi beta. So like there, there are these odd little artifacts of the culture of the company that show up in the images. And maybe actually it's even true of film stock too. I mean, you, you used to be able to tell the difference between Kodak and Fuji. Yeah. I think that's always been easier to spot, but, um, because of the amount of processing we do, it's harder to recognize these days with with digitals. But can't, uh, yeah, I mean, Sony definitely has always had their own approach, and you could really see it in the design of the cameras before they got popular again. I mean, if your memory's long enough, that you know, <laughs> Sony's only been big in cameras for a few years now. It's still relatively new to being successful. Like they've been in the game for a while, but the previous ones weren't doing that well. And they would do things like have proprietary memory cards for a long time. They had memory sticks which were oh, God, only yeah. Sony made. And then they would call... <laughs> I have a stack of Sony memory sticks here. Oh, somewhere. wow. Yeah. You should auction on eBay. <laughs> we, we can get together and I can put them beside my mini discs and beta tapes. <laughs> like they, they've, oh. been, they've been the proprietary king since the beginning. Well, and they would also rename different features like aperture priority was called lens priority or something. Like they renamed everything on it. And you're like, come on. You have to at least let me be able to switch between cameras and know what my what things are called. So uh, they've finally gotten on board with most things. They're getting closer and closer to being part of the the real world of photography. And uh, through all this, like I don't want to, I, I can't crap on Sony. They are making amazing cameras. When I was talking, when the A7 III came out, everything I had to say about it is still true. That it was it it redefined the price point of professional cameras. That for around two thousand dollars, you could have a fully professional camera. There's few jobs you couldn't do with an A7 III. Uh, but, but now, with the EOS R, I think so, uh, Canon has their option like that. Same, th- same story. I mean, I just paid less than 2000 for this. It happened to be on sale a lot, which is very helpful. But yeah, so with you don't have to pay 5D prices anymore or D810 or... I can't think of any other name, names right now. But you, it used to be... 1DX. Three, like three grand was <laughs> yeah. the baseline... And you're probably paying more than that, you know, thirty five hundred for something you could really do jobs with. And right now, it's what are the 
Tyler, I'm curious what the what are the features of the ESR that are exciting you like in real life? Like when it's in your hand, what's exciting about that camera right now? What feels good about it when you're shooting? Today what was great was I'm borrowing oh by the way, thanks to friend of the show Jordan Drake, because I've been borrowing his ESR for a few days. So I did have some uh, ramp up time. I was able to shoot a few things with it before I committed. And I was using his uh, Canon 50 1.2 RF, so the new the new 50. And I've owned the old one, the 51.2 EF. That was also an expensive camera. I think it was like two, or lens that was two thousand dollars. This one is like three thousand dollars. But um, I really always regretted that purchase. The <laughs> EF was much hyped. A lot of people loved it, but it was so incredibly soft. Anything, even at 1.4, 1.8, things in focus were not really in focus. And at 1.2, they were just so, like soft all the way through. There wasn't a point of focus. And the chromatic aberration especially was a mess. There was such strong fringing everywhere as soon as you started to open that thing up that I would throw away so much image quality that I would often think, why am I using this? Like, Why am I not just you know, shooting 1.8 on a nifty 50? And then Sigma came out. So now lens I've been using has been the Sigma 1.4, which is incredibly sharp, redefined my expectations of what a prime can look like at uh, you know this, this kind of price point without looking at Leica or Cinema Glass. But anyway, all that to say, what thrilled me this morning was shooting at 1.2 and using the new eye tracking, which is actually a recent update. So maybe I only love the ESR that exists today and I wouldn't have loved it a month ago. But the eye tracking had almost every one of those shots in focus, which never would have happened with a 5D. Well, definitely not with the 5D3, usually not with the 5D4. And it worked now. All of a sudden, I can shoot with much blurrier backgrounds and a lot more confidence that I'll get more photos in uh, in focus. And it's not only the eye tracking that is, which is very important for shallow depth field, because if you just have facial tracking, that can be the glasses. I mean, that's a common issue when even actually on the C200, sometimes when it's auto-focusing on me for YouTube videos, it'll be on my glasses the whole time. And it doesn't realize that my eyes are just behind that. But when it's actual eye tracking, which this is more tar- more targeted and uh, Sony innovated this. I mean, Sony had this first and um, I think some people still think it does it better, but they are at least competitive with each other now. It being on the actual eye is the most important. That's what needs to be, if nothing else is sharp, that has to be it. So um, yeah, that confidence from shooting that 50 this morning was a real world boost that I'm going to be able to do this a lot more. That sounds amazing because I, I shoot with the the 1.4, the like the mid range uh, 50 mil, and quite often what happens to me is I am trying to get focus on a shot, and then I will use the like the zoom feature on the sensor to try to see oh, if yeah, what yeah. I think is in focus is still in focus, and then zoom back out and then get much. No, that's real, like, and it's yeah. tedious and not very like street shooting friendly. No, I went through that a lot. I mean, it was especially frustrating shooting uh, weddings when you're in that scenario. And something that I loved about the Sony's is that since it's a mirrorless, if you're watching through the EVS, EVF, if you're in manual focus, as soon as you start focusing, it would punch in and you could see a really detailed magnification of whatever you're focusing on. And I could, same thing, get very reliable focus at F1.4 or 1.2 or whatever. 
And that meant I could use it more often. It was still slow work, so I'm manually focusing it. But I'd have much more confidence than trusting the flaky autofocus that everything has always traditionally had. Mm. And I think we just, our expectations of what sharpness means has really come up a lot. I, I don't know if it's just because of megapixels, but old EF glass. I mean, I still, like, I just sold some of those. Jason and I just had a, a gear sale, by the way. That's how a lot of this. <laughs> what funded half of the camera. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and so I, I got rid of some of my old Canon glass, like the 35 1.4 uh, Mark. Actually, I don't know if it was Mark II or Mark I, but it was, um, it was soft as hell. And it was expensive, very expensive when I got it. Same generation as that 512. That's the scariest thing to me right now is I look at all of that glass and it's so fast and so beautiful, but I've gone down that road where I've put $20,000 into stuff that was unserviceable <laughs> and unsellable four years later. Yeah, and yeah the so, prices I sold that for was yes, not what I paid for. Pennies on the dollar. So the, that's the scariest thing to me. And I, I will say that right now we're at a point where whether it be the Canon or the Sony or Olympus or whoever's making whatever mirrorless camera, they're all the same to a degree. I mean, Canon, I feel like is a tiny bit late to the game, but they came out with something that, that looks good at this very moment. And if it's, if it's colors you're after, that's like, really, I feel like the only difference that you're going to, that you're going to find between manufacturers. Uh, well, I can give you one more difference and that's usability interface ease of use. I mean, you're using Sony all the time now. Do you still feel the the pain? I mean, you true. True. I do. I do feel the pain. Yeah. Yes. The menus are convoluted. And it's real. It's real. The struggle is real in that front. I do have an anecdote about this. So, uh, I don't, I don't think I told it at the time. So we were at camera camp a little while ago with Sony, which was an amazing event. They are really great about community and making sure photographers that are discussing their gear have access to the people that know the most about it so that, you know, we can give informed opinions and just everything about the way that Sony deals with anybody covering cameras is extremely useful. And I had the ability to talk to some people that work there and I started kind of crapping on the user interface design and realized that I was sitting with the person in charge of UI the design. Man who designed it. Yes, yeah, exactly. And um, and so you know, I, I I was very kind and brutal about it. That it, and everybody says the same thing. I mean, they are trying. Of course, Sony wants it to be good. Sony wants this to be. They are trying so incredibly hard at everything they do right now, but it doesn't mean that they're succeeding at the same level that Canon is. The easiest example I've talked about it a few times is just that. If you pick up anybody's Canon, most of the controls are set up the exact same way. I could grab Rob's 5D Mark III and I know how to shoot it instantly. I can change every setting on it in the same way that I, not, not only the same way that I have been doing for years, but he hasn't customized anything. And on every Sony, I don't, you, you tell me, Jason, if you customize yours very much, but my Sony's, all the custom buttons are set to something different from anyone else's. You have to design the menus in a way that works for you. And then if you borrow somebody else's camera, you have you're no lost. idea what you're doing. Yeah, And that is not a good idea. That doesn't work very well. That's true. They, Canon does have the better interface. And I mean, they, with a Canon, you, there was a point where you can operate it with your eyes closed behind your back after you use it for a couple of years. And that is literally just not ever possible with the Sony because you have to go sometimes three submenus deep to change Whatever. Well, and that's those are some of the complaints I do have about the EOS R right now. Is you definitely can't do that blind control in the same way that you could at the five D. You have to look down at the camera. There are no buttons for you know dedicated for say ISO or white balance or like there are ways to change them. There's now a convenient little clicking wheel 
on the front of all of the RF lenses that uh, most people assign it to adjust the ISO. So now you have a dial for ISO, shutter speed, and um, the other one, aperture. But they've really given up a lot of different physical controls that mean you need to rememorize stuff. You don't have one press ways to get places. I think a lot of that's what we're hoping comes to the pro version of this is that ability to be able to operate it blind. But it's, it is missing right now, and so far it is slightly driving me a little bit crazy. I'm also really curious if they're going to get rid of the little touch bar on it, which nobody seems to use or like. Apple did it, everybody complained, and then Canon's like, you know what, let's implement this as well. Yeah, well, and <laughs> Sony did it on the PlayStation 4. The PS4 controllers have that big touchpad that nobody has done anything interesting with. Usually it just launches a map. Right. I don't know. You know, with all, with all of this and all the stuff that we're talking about, what Rob said first about his camera being a tank is what I actually miss about my Canon. And if the 1DX comes out promising, and even if it's at a higher price point, I'm all for paying for something more that is going to put a million frames on itself and you could literally dip it in the ocean and not worry about it. Right now, the 1DX3 is something I'm kind of thinking about. Like I'm, I'm kind of considering getting it, especially because it can shoot raw. Maybe that'll be full frame. We don't know yet. It's going to have great slow motion, just like the previous 1DX did. Um, it's going to be an amazing stills camera. It's going to be every, everything that I hope for. But it's not going to be an RF lens mount. It's going to be an EF lens mount. And now this is the, you're referring to the confusion of Canon right now. It's like, what do you do? Like, what do you commit to? You don't know what, even what is the perfect path that Canon wants you to walk down and buying new stuff. I don't even know what they wish you were doing. It seems like they're not also friendly to the low end consumer. It seems like they're stuck right exactly in the middle between pro and, and not pro. If they were to make more um, inexpensive RF lenses, this could really take off for them. I mean, they have the Costco deal. I mean, how many people bought the $500 T5i from Costco? They probably sold a case a day in some cities. Oh, for sure. Anybody yeah. who had a yeah, baby yeah. bought a T5i, it was just like what you did. And there is a decent full-frame mirrorless, the RP, which everybody shooting video complained about a lot because it doesn't shoot 24 frames per second, but Canon said they will update that. But it's uh, even more affordable and does a lot of great stuff. Hold on, wait. <laughs> it doesn't shoot 24 frames. Yeah, that was a hilarious scandal. <laughs> if, if you can call what? that. I don't know. But yeah, so it, you know, it's like 500, 700, I don't remember how much cheaper. It's quite a bit cheaper. And that's just one missing feature. It just doesn't shoot 24. You could switch it to PAL mode and shoot 25 frames per second. Oh, come on, yeah. guys. No, it's, it's such an own goal. It is so obvious that that's not going to work out well for them and it costs them nothing to do and just makes people angry. I don't get do, it. do you know anything about the physical sizes of these companies? I mean, like, is Canon a bigger company than Sony? Oh, oh actually, well, I guess compared to the two of them, I don't know for sure. So I would guess Sony is bigger. Um, Rob, can you Google this for me? Yeah, I'm Googling as we speak, yeah. I, okay, I'm going to guess that Sony is bigger. Canon is way bigger than most of the others, like Fuji, Nikon is not a big company. Olympus is part of other companies now. They got bought. Panasonic is. I don't remember some of those joints. I mean, Rico is under some. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, the whole bunch of the smaller ones got swallowed up, and I forget exactly how that map plays out these days. You know, Hasselblad is under DJI. Leica is independent, right? Well, Leica and Panasonic seem to be in bed together for a lot of things. But that's a collaborate. I mean, those are agreements. I think. Yeah, right. Panasonic took on the L mount lenses, and so did whoever right. else. And then what else? Sigma is independent now that they are a camera manufacturer. Jason's excited about the Sigma 
What's it called? FP? FP, yeah. I think it's I think it's probably one of the more be- I mean, alongside the Hasselblad a- cool, X1D yeah. that came out, I think that was the most beautiful camera I'd ever seen and and this is like a modern take on that and a red somehow all at the same time, but it can't focus. So that's uh that's a, that's a problem. <laughs> that's a, I feel yeah. like that's a that's more of a professional cinema tool rather than you want to just slap your giant lens on it with a focus ring and and go to town but as far as shooting stills it may not be your best friend or vlogging or or focusing on yourself I, it's a big complaint i have about the black magic that everybody loves so much black magic pocket camera insanely good images but not having reliable autofocus is a big problem for the way that i shoot as a usually as a single person operator i don't have somebody else pulling focus for me so Right. I have an answer to your question. Oh, tell me. Who? Uh, Canon employs about 200,000 people. Whoa. And Sony employs about 115,000 people. Oh, so. wow. So that that's really interesting because my my beef with with Canon, right? Well, my few, one of my few beefs with Canon other than the glass that I gave gave them a lot of money for is their release dates. I mean, they, they've announced a, a 1DX Mark III, sort of, <laughs> and they've given us most of the specs, but, you but know it could be a year before we see it. And it, it, Sony has taken the Apple approach where they it announce it and then you, you could drive by the Costco on the way home and get it. Okay, both of them drive me crazy, though, because the problem with the Sony one is they have been coming out so fast that you feel like you can never commit because it's about to be replaced. That's an, that is its own downside as well. But usually the Canon problem is actually a little different. I mean, it's interesting that they announced anything about the 1DX because, say, with the 5Ds, they say nothing until it's announced, but it's always way longer than you expected. So I do like that I can predict that, you know, I've been on the 5D train for since the very first one, so that's a, at least a decade now. And I like knowing that when I buy it, it's going to, be my primary camera for years and years and I don't need to question that. Like I don't I know that if I buy it today I'll be able to use it for at least three, maybe five years without having a new one come out and supersede it. Right. Um, now it's up in the air because there's the RF map. I will say that Sony's done a, a reasonable job of keeping older models alive. Like with their little point and shoot camera. I was just looking the other day and I mean they still sell the every iteration of the RX100 <laughs> at almost every store. Like, do you buy the Mark IV, the Seven, or the Six? So you can trade up or trade down. And the thing about Sony is that if, if there's something you don't like, six months later, there's, they've sorted it out and fixed it in the newer version. And sure, that sucks that you have to buy a camera a year and a half later. But I've sold two of them now for reasonable money in short periods of time just because they're still somewhat relevant. I did buy a few other things that I want to touch on. The 35 millimeter 1.8 macro lens is what I picked up as a as a kit. There was a bit of a discount by buying them together. I feel like I need to have a relatively small native mount lens with it. Um, I also have the adapter, so I can use my EF glass, but that makes everything quite a bit bigger. Anything adapted isn't the same. I'm not. I don't love adapters as a solution, but I'm also not ready to buy all native glass yet. So this is relatively affordable. It, it is stabilized. So for video, that's extremely important. Um, if we're, when we're traveling, it means that I can I can kind of walk around and just shoot with this for a lot of things. On the Sony, the lens I was using for that was the 28 millimeter 2.0. 35 is not as wide. Um, that might bite me a few times. The, the width is helpful. Like if you're going to only have one prime lens, I would go wider instead of 
tighter. I mean, even 28 felt like 24 might have been the prime that really would be the most useful. But like we said, you can't just have that many options out yet. Hopefully this year they, they pop out a few more. Maybe like a 24-1.8 would be nice or 24-2.0 or I don't know. But uh, I got that. And then I also somewhat separately got the Godox V1 Flash. That's interesting. I was actually going to ask you uh, because we were talking about the whole throwing away AA batteries. And I mean, it's kind of it's kind of, dis- it's kind of disappointing that Canon doesn't put the Canon battery into the Canon flashes because everybody's got 100 Canon batteries hanging out. <laughs> that was the only bad thing I thought opening up the Godox box was looking at the charger. I'm like, oh, this is a totally proprietary one-of-a-kind charger and a one-of-a-kind battery that now I have to carry it with me. I think it's, I'd still prefer it over going down the path of more double A's, but the battery is probably only $50 as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I can get three of them and they will last the lifetime of the flash. And I love the circular thing about it. It's if anybody hasn't seen it, it, you know, it's basically a normal flash, but the front of it is a circle and there's little magnet attachments. So part of the appeal is also getting the accessory kit so that I can basically keep for me, the most important accessory is the tungsten gels, um, which usually I just keep a gel taped with like ugly gaff tape to the front of my Canon flash. And it's always there. And I just pull it backwards from not using it and tape it back on itself and then pull it forwards. And it looks jank as, (laughs) it's not good. It's not a good look. It doesn't look (laughs) the way I would want for clients. But the Godox has this little magnet system and you can just pop it on and off and it's meant to be there. You know, I'm worried I'm going to lose that little accessory, but it's a lot cleaner way to to manage it so Godox is a funny company to me i was just uh watching some reviews on their their flashes in general and they're they're literally competing with profoto and brown color the the <laughs> yeah. 10 and twenty thousand dollar flashes that that um and they're coming out in and around seven hundred dollars and with a really impressive color consistency and results for for just not real money mm-hmm. well my, my friends at the camera store which this is where i bought it um if you guys watch the YouTube channel, the Camera Store TV, um, Evelyn was saying that since the Godox have come in, like the Canon sales have really slowed down. A lot less people are buying the Canon flashes because it's just so, why would you not? Like the Godox seems better in many ways and it's less expensive. Same thing that happened when signal lenses got good, you know? That's true. It's a really good eye-opener, I think, for the big brands to step up their gaming and actually beef up what they're selling us. I mean, now that everything's on USB-C, you want everything to charge on USB-C. Give us one charger. Give us a dedicated battery that's inexpensive. Well, I have one more gear anecdote before we move on. So at the sale that uh, Jason and I had, if you missed it, I mean, maybe we'll do it again next year, so stay tuned if you're in Calgary. I missed it. Oh, I missed Rob, the sale. you no. could have had all this... You could have had this A7 III that I've been well, hyping up so much. To be fair, as an early adopter of really cheap alternatives to like Canon's proprietary stuff, I mean, I do hang on to a lot of Mets and Strobe Pro gears. So. Oh, right, yeah. Jason's a big Strobe Pro fan. <laughs> well, I love, they have... Actually, you know what? I, I, I joke about them, but I, I like their gear. <laughs> yeah, no, the, I mean, there's absolutely an argument for cheap stuff. I've been using Alien Bees for 10 years now. And for me, it stands. Uh, you, you get a solid, beautiful C-stand for $120 or whatever it is. Yeah, you can't go wrong with that. Yeah. Like a, like a, like a C-stand, C-stand is, is too much C-stand, money. C-stand, C-stand by the C-sore, right? C, 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 by the C. By the C yeah. <laughs> so the, the funny thing about StroPro and what we were just talking about is all of their stuff is actually Godox just rebranded as StroPro. So, exactly. Wait, okay, actually, this is something I don't know. So the three of us are 
from and in Calgary, Alberta right now. Stropro comes from Calgary, right? Are they outside? Like, do people know what we're talking about? Um, no, but Go, Godox, <laughs> Godox actually does this in many countries. So if you actually look at their, there's a division and, and in Calgary for the longest time, it was only sold as Stropro. And then when Godox got more popular, now, I mean, Viztech and the camera store both have a, a Godox you know, section just as, just as legit as Nikon or Panasonic or any other brand, which is kind of nice to see. I mean, they were really the underdog that's sort of taken over and said, Hey, we're here and we're not going anywhere. Who cares about our name? Buy it. Weird. Um, anyway, so, okay. The other thing that I did, I sold a bit of audio gear. I sold a bunch of my old recorders. Um, cause you know, I had some interfaces that just weren't seeing that much use. Cause, uh, now I have the mix pre three. That's what I'm recording into now. And it's kind of my portable recorder, which I love it. I mean, this is an incredibly high quality, fantastic piece of kit. I sold all the other stuff because I wanted to have something that has the same level of inputs as this, same quality of preamps, but that could stay at my desk so that when I sit down, I can just hit record. This isn't always here. A lot of the time this is at home or my camera bag or just the the cables aren't with it because it's got whatever. It's not, it's not, or I was using it for something else. So I need to set up exactly how all the inputs are. And if I have changed it for some sort of portable recording scenario, then I sit down on my computer podcast situations, not ready to go. Anyway, I ordered the universal audio arrow, which is this really killer audio input device. It just has two inputs, but it its preamps are apparently amazing. Actually, I'm saying it's killer based on everybody else's opinions, not mine. But what what I hear is it's the it's the new hotness. It's the the way to go. It comes with a bunch of a and Rob, you can tell me what I'm getting wrong about all this. But it has a bunch of really great plugins that are quite expensive. All the Universal Audio stuff is like 150 bucks at least per plugin. Mm-hmm. That's true. And you yeah. get a package, and it they run on the Thunderbolt on the arrow, on the outboard Thunderbolt device, on the audio interface that I'm talking about, that handles the processing of these plugins. So it's not eating up extra CPU power. So if you're using a, say, lightweight MacBook that doesn't have a lot of processing power behind it, your little audio device can handle that heavy lifting of a compressor and a reverb and distortion, whatever you're slapping on top of your podcast vocals, and uh, do all that for you. Which... Is is that how it works? I don't know. That is basically how it works. Uh, the Native Instruments was doing this earlier on with um, plugins, and there's a ton of advantages to taking the processor load off of your main processor and dumping it onto an audio breakout box because, like, audio processing is still it's a little less complex than video processing, and um, you can get more elegant results because it's a less complex signal path, so or a less complex signal anyway. So uh, you can let your hard drive be doing all of its loops and uh, going back over audio recordings over and over and over. And in the meantime, you're not having to have the processor deal with where locating all those audio files and try to do like compression or reverb or whatever else that you want to do. So, plus Universal Audio has a lot of the like tantalizing um, plugins and like models of really ancient, famous audio equipment that nobody can afford anymore. Yeah, there's preamp simulators that I'd love to try. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like, I mean, there's a ton of old compressors that if you want to be a geek about it, you could really, you could really get into it. Now, I, I went the other direction when I uh, um, upgraded my. Um, 
my IO. And so now I'm, I'm using the Apogee stuff, which is uh, Apple and Apogee like tend to work pretty closely together. And it is like streamlined as you can get. So like it, it just, it's just a really nice preamp and it doesn't do much else other than just like suck your sound in and make it sound good. <laughs> well, actually I should look at what the Apogee options are in this, in this range. Cause I did run into some issues, but I'll get to that in a second. I think you're probably like, you're how many, how many ins and outs are you? You're like four, right? Well, I only really need two usually. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you're like they uh, in this range, you're looking at things like the duet um, or the element series. The element 46 is kind of like a, like a, like a middle of their range. There a lot of their more expensive stuff is, I don't know why you would, but universal audio has always made some really interesting options. And since they started getting into hardware more, it seems like it's become a more interesting thing. And companies are now starting to kind of have to throw you their software where that used to be the thing that was the, the draw for going with one lineup or another. So, uh, you know, like even, um, Apogee is starting to try to tell me about all the, uh, all the compressors and things they've added to their lineup that I'm not using because I'm still using the ones embedded inside of logic. Well, I'm looking at the element 24 and the 46 right now. They look, I mean, they look really boring physically, but. Oh yeah. There's, there's nothing on them. There's no <laughs> knobs and it's all yeah. controlled from your phone if you want. Oh, weird. Okay. I'm going to take a closer look. What ended up happening is the arrow arrived. I actually still have it, but I'm going to be sending it back because I realized the iMac I sit in front of every time I'm recording the podcast in studio is Thunderbolt. I think it's actually Thunderbolt 1, not even Thunderbolt 2. It is late 2013. I cannot plug this device into it. Uh, yeah, so that's that Thunderbolt 1 was the old, like, like the same as the monitor port. It's mm-hmm, the same size yes. as Thunderbolt 2, but it doesn't allow the same amount of throughput as, as Thunderbolt 2 does. And then Thunderbolt 3 is that one that sh- shares the same size, frustratingly, as USB-C. But does uh, also carry the bus power that is required. So that's the big difference that uh, the Arrow can't support is you need to be able to send power over the single cable. So the only way I could have done it is to buy a breakout box, which that, so a external Thunderbolt adapter that is powered so that it was getting Mm. its own power and I'd probably spend like 200 bucks on that separately and all that just to run it back through and into the computer. And then it's not officially supported anyway. So it might not even work well. So that (laughs) did not sound like a good solution. Anyway, all this to say that sending it back, I don't know what I'm going to do now. Um, I'm using the MixPress 3 still, which sounds great, but just means I need to set it back up every time I record. I don't know. That was a fail. But what what else should I look at, Rob? You know these things. Oh my gosh. I mean, like Apogee, like um, even though the duet is an older is an older interface, it's still it's just so easy to use. So, uh, I mean, you've only got you're limited to two inputs. So, you've really got to want to have that Apogee preamp sound. I can live with that. But the the majority of the work that I'm doing like, you know, as a singer-songwriter guy is sitting around my house with just like one guitar going. Sometimes I have a second input going at the same time, but rarely because I want to go back and fix what I've recorded. So, I would take a look at it. One of the things I love about it is it's USB bus powered. Uh, mm-hmm. And the latency is not there. Right. Even years after they released the first version of it, they're they're now on the Duet. Like it can you can run it on your iPad if you want, and it's still like the latency is non-existent. I'm flipping through the screenshots, and it looked like looks like the interface was designed a few operating systems ago. But uh, yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I have seen it around for a long time. I know people use it and trust it, so 
Okay, I'm going to take a closer look at it. But um, nobody listening cares about audio, so let's talk about Star Wars. <laughs> no, no, this is, this is called Cameras or Whatever and Star Wars. <laughs> Again, this is spoiler alert warning. We are going to, right from the beginning, just assume anybody listening has seen the movie. And if you're just not interested in Star Wars at all, that's okay. You can come back next episode. We will talk about something else. But this is a, this is a tradition. So, um, you know, maybe also do some homework. Listen to Rob and I having talked about the previous movies. And because um, it's good to know the context. Because I, I maybe want to even start by circling back a little bit on how we now feel in 2019 about The Last Jedi. Because it was a very controversial movie. And I think split the fan base even more than it ever had been before. Not that you needed another movie to fracture Star Wars fans, but, um, you know, it, even amongst a lot of my friends, a lot of people I know and trust their opinions and care about what they think had very strong, different opinions from me after they walked out of that theater. Anyway, my, what I've come to think since I rewatched the movie recently as homework before the rise of Skywalker, the highs and lows of the last Jedi are even more pronounced than I remember. The best of it really is fantastic. The relationship between uh, Ray and Kylo Ren is very surprisingly nuanced for a Star Wars film. The acting by both those actors is great. I really enjoyed the approach to Luke and the surprises of people's behavior that that's what pissed so many people off is that's like these characters aren't acting like I've seen them act before. And I was totally okay with that. But the lows like the casino scene are actually really pretty terrible. I mean, uh, everybody, everybody tried to talk me into it at the time. Like, didn't you notice how bad it was like, yeah, I don't know. I wasn't, I wasn't paying enough attention to the theater. I just had a good time. When you watch it again, it is pretty bad, but I, I do. I think it was a very ambitious movie in a lot of ways. I feel like, they sort of tried harder than any of these other recent Star Wars movies because they took, you know, I, I've really come to appreciate Ryan Johnson since this. I watched Knives Out recently, um, Ryan Johnson being the director. And um, I like how hard he tries. And uh, I don't know. Those, those are my thoughts since we last discussed it. I think I've fallen to something very similar to you where I uh, the again the high points are wonderful I remember sitting down for it not giving anything away but I remember sitting down for the movie this morning when I when I watched it and thinking oh man like they're skimming over a lot of stuff but thinking back actually they had there was a lot of development that occurred in uh, Last Jedi that was important narratively, and I think it worked well. The stuff that was the B-plot, though, I, I could have lived without, mostly. And I, and I think there were some some places where the characters felt a bit misused or a bit, or a bit uninteresting. It felt a bit episodic rather than saga-ish. So... So I agree. I mean, and it was still a, a very beautiful film to look at. And I also thought that Ryan Johnson and I stand behind what I said, you know, in the last podcast is that Ryan Johnson was in a really hard spot because Force Awakens was criticized uh, broadly for being too similar to the uh, the original trilogy and trying to reintroduce us into that kind of filmmaking. 
And so um, Ryan Johnson was trying to not make Empire Strikes Back, and I think he was very successful in not making Empire Strikes Back. But uh, you know, there's there's also some downsides to that. People love Empire Strikes Back, <laughs> uh, but I like where it got us to mm-hmm. in this film. The push and pull between the two films is, I mean, it's so much of what you can even complain about with them or appreciate. There there are some ways they followed through more than I expected, but what I don't like is that it was so visible how the two directors were battling in public for what is Star Wars and what is this franchise supposed to be. And you could see them, both Ryan Johnson, the way he, that he reacted to Episode Seven by surprising us all with like, oh, you thought Snoke was going to be important. Guess what? He's not. Now we saw all these ways that J.J. Abrams came back around and then was battling Ryan with basically undoing certain relationships that were built up and then also, um, you know, doing some really heavy handed fan service. I don't know. It was just like, there was a little too meta going on, like too much awareness of, Oh, here's what's happening within the franchise. And I don't want to be thinking about that. I want to be living in outer space. Jason, was this a good movie? It was, (laughs) uh, it it took me back to, I, I sat through the whole movie thinking would a 12 or 8 year old me love this and hot wiring speeders and the the jetpack stormtroopers all of that stuff I <laughs> I, would have I lost loved. my mind yeah. and for so many wrap ups this last couple of years we've seen so many things get duplicated and replicated I think they did a good job of keeping it light without overloading us with just too many false turns of information. It was simple enough and effective, and it touched on so many childhood romances that I adore that for having. But at the same time, I feel like they amalgamated every story that ever happened into one film. Like, I've got to go do this on my own. No, we're all going to do it together because we stick together. Or we'll call on all of the villages to come to the final battle, but we don't know if they're going to show up. And we all knew that they were going to show up. I mean, we knew that there was going to be 12 of them going in and and they would turn around and there'd be 100,000 ready to fight at some point. Those were things that were just like, it was a little bit formulaic, but I still still enjoyed it. I think that's part of the challenge. As a young teenager, this would have been... pretty perfect film and if i watch it as much as possible through those eyes i enjoy it a lot it's really fun but it's not very smart (laughs) (laughs) like a a frustrating amount of places that i had to turn off my brain to really get into it and it was the it was the most out of the three that i felt that way last Jedi, I wasn't as, I didn't feel as dumb walking out of the theater, even though maybe it's because it was easier to shut off the one whole B plot and like, I'll ignore that whole thing. And then the A plot all works for me. Whereas this one, there were just so many things that happened. The amount of movies crammed into this movie, obviously it could have been, it could have been cut down so much. And I've already kind of heard a few people talk about how that was something that happened. Like the way that the editing went on this is that there are a lot of different versions and that's how we ended up with some weird dead ends. Like when Finn kept trying to tell Ray he had something to tell her and then he never did. It's like, this was so overpacked with stuff and the stuff was insanely cool. So many of these scenes were really beautiful, really fun ideas and they didn't all need to be there. <laughs> I, I didn't, I didn't feel that way when I saw Endgame. I thought that was, I mean, way too much. Too often, every second something was happening. And this, I thought they developed nicely. I mean, there were there were obviously some holes here and there, but I was able to let go of that. I mean, 
I don't yeah, know. There were, what, what, there were what, a lot of holes. What do you, what, what? There's a lot of like, oh, I don't know. I mean, it's just, there's extreme conveniences of, of plot. Like they fall into quicksand, happen to be right on top of the knife that they need to lead them to the Death Star. And then they're standing on this edge of a cliff exactly in the right spot that this knife opens up and shows the remnants of the Death Star. And by the way, like what... what I'm trying to like figure out the timeline of when this knife was constructed to perfectly map to the Death Star, which if you watch the Empire Strikes Back is completely obliterated to dust. There's a lot of coincidences uh-huh. going on here. Uh, yes. I- however, however, uh, <laughs> I'll just play devil's advocate on that. There's also the, the force, uh, the fact of the force, which works for me as an excuse because force space and magic. Also, that scene, that particular scene where they're standing on that cliff, I remember just being so overjoyed that because they were on a moon of the Endor system, that the waves were gigantic because the tidal forces on mm. a moon would be much more dramatic than they would be from on like a like on our own planet. So we're looking at these giant waves crashing into what's left of a chunk of the Death Star, and I was like, "Yeah, we're in space, and it's rad." <laughs> it did look really cool. All of that stuff was so beautiful. By the way, I do know that a second ago I said Empire Strikes Back when I meant to say Return of the Jedi, but I'm there was so much cool stuff. Yes, but okay, the Burning Man planet where they went to recover the knife, where Chewie got captured, where. 15 different side quests happen to go capture the item that'll take you to the next item, which will lead you to the next clue. This did not have to be so complicated. And I do feel like if I was a 12 year old, I would have no idea what was going on with so many of these plot details of like, why are they, why are they recovering this dagger? And what's this Sith tracking device that like Sith can't find their home planet without these two magical gems that date back. I don't know. Like, there was a lot of details that, like, did we really need to know all that? Or could they have just been doing the things? I found that whole scene frustrating where Kylo Ren goes to find Rey. He almost battles her. He sees her do something crazy, and then she just leaves. And he's just, like, okay. so dumbfounded that he <laughs> that he can't follow. Yeah. And he's like, well, I'm just going to wait this out and then track her again with my mind later on. Well, and he did it again later. I'll just, like, let her take off, which, again, through the whole series, their relationship, I think, has just been one of the strongest things, partly because I think those both of those actors are great. Like, they are better than the scripts that they're reading. They, they were so devout to their roles, and you could really feel his internal struggle against good, bad, her, what what's actually going on, what am I feeling? And, and I felt like she was also amazing, too, because she was so focused. And they didn't bring any... I mean, they brought a little bit of sense of humor to C-3PO, obviously, but there was no there was no humor between them. It was all business, and I, and I actually liked that. And it was like you could feel that struggle that you know he needed to know, and she she needed to know about her family, and he needed to know about her. He just needed. This is I feel weird being the one that has the the worst things to say about it this time. <laughs> <laughs> did, as a not fan, did did you guys have high expectations? Expectations going into this because I've seen I I had zero expectations because of how all over the place it's been. It's just been really hard to sort of gauge this. Did you two like were you excited that this was going to be the ultimate? 
I was very excited. I, I think, uh, and that was a hard thing to try to tamp myself down because I, I will say, like my big criticism about it, I, Tyler, I mentioned it earlier in a, in a message. I was just like, this movie had four acts. It had like a three act structure, and then also a full act of exposition all the way up the top, where we're just like, mm-hmm. okay, here's everything you missed that gets you to here, and it's going to happen in 23 minutes, and you're going to be like, what? And then finally, we're on some quest, <laughs> but. This movie was the movie that I was waiting for since I was a kid. I never cared about the prequels. I never wanted to know what happened before all of this. And I think it was a it was a very like uh, apparently Tolkien famously thought that people might be interested in like the history of Elvish language and the history of um, Middle Earth. And all the writers that used to work with him were just like, no, nobody cares about any of that. So why don't you just write a story that happens later? And so the reason that the world is so full and so effectively built is because he cared about all that, but he excluded it intentionally from the storytelling. Or for the most part. Again, if you get through Lord of the Rings, it's a long, it's a, it's a long haul. I think George Lucas also had this world built in his head, and he had the opportunity to create the backstory thinking that people would be very interested, and then we weren't. But as a kid, all that I cared about was just like, let's get to episode nine. That's the one I want to see. And I think um, I, I felt bad for Ryan Johnson, and I felt bad for J.J. Abrams because both of them are trying to write scripts that 10-year-old me would be like, yeah, but what's going to happen now? Like, how are you going to end all of this? And I think, Tyler, you know, we talked about the idea that I, I didn't really want Ray to come from somewhere. I wanted her to be outside of the Skywalker drama, sort of. And and in the end, I'm, I, I'd heard some hints over the last few years that maybe she was a Palpatine. And, I think we said it even in the podcast. Yeah, yeah, and I, I'm okay with it. But I do like the idea that she could choose to be who she wanted to be at the end. And I felt like there was a very satisfying arc for Ray and a very satisfying arc for Kylo Ren as he embraces becoming Ben Solo again. What I don't like thinking about with these three movies, now that they're all here, is what was planned from day one and what wasn't. Because some of it feels like they really were just making it up as they went along. Best example was... I don't feel confident enough that they had committed from the beginning that Ray was related to Palpatine. Like I'm not even, I'm not sure that he was supposed to come back in this third movie until, until the third movie started being written two years ago or or whatever. Like, I don't know that, that how much of this arc was all supposed to be there and how much was frantically made up at the last minute to try to cobble things together because you know, was Snoke supposed to be in the last film? I feel like that was a rewrite on Ryan Johnson's part. Like, too many things being made up as they went along. I have a question right now. So this is not, this was not pre-written. There's in the graphic novel that supports this beforehand. <laughs> no. Good question, Jason. The background is, George Lucas always said, oh, I imagined it as a, he actually said, I imagined it as a 12-part series, but it was, it was too much. So I chopped it down to a nine-episode story that I'd love to release over time. And I just decided to start with episode four, but I have this much bigger idea of the whole universe. Yeah. And episode four was the one that he felt would be more immediately saleable. And uh, it turns out possibly because of all the background work that had been done on Yodorowsky's Dune, that they were actually starting to see this kind of world building as a reasonable thing to do. And when 20th Century Fox took a risk on, um, on Lucas, they were like, yeah, we, we get where you're going with this. Well, and what I think is the truth, though, is that he had 
a really messy notebook full of wacky ideas that <laughs> most of which never ended up connecting in, into anything other than the only thing that was actually truly planned was the original Star Wars, A New Hope. Yeah. That was the one that like the ideas were mo- mostly developed. But I do not think that he thought that Darth Vader was Luke's father. I don't think. Right. So all of this has just happened organically as it's been built. There's fan theories. So so this is actually really interesting. So then, like Palpatine, that whole thing could have just happened as it was happening to fill in pieces? I like the strength of Emperor Palpatine as a bad guy. I thought it made Return of the Jedi really compelling. I, I know everybody's like, eh, Return of the Jedi, blah, blah. But, and you know that I, I heart Return of the Jedi. So I like bringing Palpatine back as a villain that we know that we can expect the worst from right away, mm-hmm. who also is going to challenge both Kylo Ren and Rey to potentially manipulate them into uh, joining the dark side as well. So it worked for me pretty well to have him back. And I didn't mind it because I was so delightfully surprised by the the straight-up murder of uh, Snoke that I was like, oh, I... <laughs> I wonder where they're going here. I thought maybe they might really take Kylo Ren and push him further, but I want I see that they wanted to redeem him as a as a Skywalker rather than have him turn darker and worse. My, the downside for Palpatine for me was it was another part of that nothing that happens is it sticks in this universe. People don't really die. People like everything you think is happening isn't really happening and can always be switched at a moment. Chewie wasn't really in that transporter. Even yeah, that, like, that, why, that was a whole. I mean, there was only up? one transporter sitting there, and then. Well, so I, I've heard people say this that have watched it twice. That I guess you do see it's all there. It is on screen. There is a second transporter. It's just you kind of miss it. You don't notice. But uh, this sort of like playing with. I don't know, playing with like people, whether they die or do not die being so casual, even I've always felt this way a little bit with force ghosts that like, Mm -hmm. how, how important is it for anybody? How significant is it when any Jedi dies, if they can just do everything basically that they could in real life at any moment, they can just appear and help our heroes and interact with them physically what is the diff- what does it really matter that they even died in the first place yeah and i think that's them even george lucas was trying to write himself out of corners early on uh you know he might not have killed ben kenobi if he thought that he was going to need him again but then suddenly um he had the money and the freedom to make a second film and it's just like oh i i need to get a ben kenobi back for a bit and then Yoda, and then Ben is still in the next one, and then like, and so I, I felt similar to it in this way as well. Suspending my disbelief, though, about the Force Ghost thing, I never felt at risk for Ray about whether she was going to die because I felt like her arc was critical. Mm-hmm. But everybody else started to feel a little bit more disposable as the trilogy went on, and I don't know. I, like I, I sent you a message earlier, Tyler, I, when I just left the theater. As far as I was concerned, I was like, this is my favorite movie ever, period. <laughs> Even though it's full of like, it is full of holes and there's lots of things going on that I just... I wish I could watch it as a 15-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I, I, I want to go back and, and see it again because over time it will become um, it will become its own part of that sort of like... Because like, I love watching and re-watching films, which is probably... The, 
not like a mental health highlight of my life, but <laughs> I do love to go back and revisit those worlds and revisit my favorite moments. And so I know that like when I take a sick day, you know, like two or three months from now that I'll have downloaded this movie and I will sit and watch it. And then I'll probably go back and watch the commentary and I'll go back and watch it for other details that I just enjoyed or that made me feel at home in this world that's been built for me. We, we started, we, uh, you know, like all the other suckers. Well, we also, I also have a, like a newborn, so you Disney Plus was going to be inevitable for us because now I can watch the new CGI Muppet Babies. Who, uh, First of all, I don't need a penguin. I don't need the penguin, but I understand why you did it because she's another female character. <laughs> Moving on. the um, So The Mandalorian, the look of the show looks very concept art-ish. Like it looks like Ralph McQuarrie drew those panels. And I know like all the people that, that – that are in the art departments now, like use that kind of 70s sci-fi style to sort of infuse everything. And they sometimes go back to the original Macquarie stuff and, and like mine it for details. But what I noticed as well about this last film is that there were also a lot of moments that looked concept arty to me. I think one of the big ones was, well, I mean, so like you see those, like all of those ships in the sort of like the storm of, Mm -hmm. of like lightningy skies, uh, as the, as the, the final order is getting ready, which I choose another name, <laughs> <laughs> but also like the, the Sith temple is a sort of floating cube of black rock. When you say that, is there, is there a negative undertone to that? Like when you say like, do you mean that it falls a little bit flat? No, I mean, it's funny because I actually have like uh, some outrageously expensive Ralph McQuarrie coffee table books of all the concept art for the original films. Right. And I love the look of them. And I have a real soft spot for that style of illustration and artwork. It just, I, I'm seeing it more and more on the screen. Yeah, in a concept art kind of way. The strongest example that jumps to mind of that is actually in The Last Jedi when the I don't remember what they call them. The little speeders are ripping up the salt yes. and creating the red lines behind them. Uh, just these yeah. really iconic. Yeah, it's visuals. perfect. And you can you like I bought that poster. Everything visually about all these three films is completely amazing. Yeah, it, on, it is on point. Incredible. On point. Yeah, art direction, cinematography, every level. You know, this is the best of their craft, creating very beautiful. Well, and I think I think what you're trying to say is, I mean, for, for, from my point of view, how I'm reading it is, I mean, we we went through a phase where we saw a lot of CGI in a certain three three part series of these, and yes. then yeah. <laughs> and then now um, it took it back to a little bit of a grittier state where it doesn't have to be real, but it has to be good, and it, it it's not about when something CGI sticks out, it 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 it, it automatically I've left the place. Where it's where where I'm supposed to be, whereas, you know, with this sort of you know concept uh, art, it, you 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 can fall into that because it's it's there and there's it's textural and yeah. you're feeling all of these other things and they can they can sort of create depth that maybe necessarily would be impossible before and and it's real it takes you there. Uh- I understand that like we, we take the Skywalker saga and end it by having Ben Solo be redeemed. As Kylo Ren, he's, he's redeemed, and now he realizes that he has a chance to. And so like some heavy foreshadowing about Rey healing things and then him uh, offering an opportunity to heal Rey. Do they need thematically to kiss before he dies? No. That kiss was totally weird to me. 
Yeah. It was weird to me too. And I like I love the idea that it's like, oh, what overthrows the emperor's hate after all of these years, after all of this time is is I guess in theory the love between two people, but I thought their relationship was familial. Like I Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It felt like like sort of brother sisterish and I felt like that was strong enough. And to me, it was stronger yeah, because I, it was more interesting. It, it seemed as, as though the whole time we were getting prepared to realize that they were family. Yeah. And then, bam, it's just this kiss that it, that ends it all. It was a little too somehow Romeo and Juliet or something. I don't know. But it, it, was, yeah. it was very awkward and, it, and unsettling. I have a bigger complaint about a different romance. The, um, in Last Jedi, everybody complained about uh, Finn and Rose. Yeah. The, it just... It didn't quite work for the chemistry wasn't there. Nobody was really into it. Not nobody, but yeah. Okay. Generally, it was somewhat rejected. I really didn't like that this movie basically acknowledged that, like on screen. They're like, oh, we know you as the fans really didn't think that they fit together. So we intentionally separated them for the whole movie and gave her almost no speaking role. It was just too clear the influence of the fan reaction there, which I guess, you know, I don't know. They did that before where Jar Jar Binks took a back seat after the Phantom Menace, but I don't think this was at all at that level. And I, I don't know, just completely forgetting that there was a closeness there or that you had established that these characters kissed. I, I don't know. I mean, there, there's obviously supposed to be a relationship and the film just abandoned it, was just like, mm-hmm. never mind, didn't happen, forget it. Yeah, and there was a lot of there were a lot of moments where I was just like, "Oh, are we done? We done with all that? Okay, mm-hmm. all right, cool. Moving on." I have something I have to tell you. Well, it, was it that I made out with some other girl in a second movie <laughs> that I regret? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is that is that what it was? And now I'm kind of like I'm like, okay, Force Awakens set up that relationship between Finn and Ray, and I liked it, that relationship between the two of them. So, are we going to see like a family sitcom with Finn and Ray where they're like <laughs> settling down on Tatooine, and she's just like, <laughs> "I got to go out to Dusty Station and pick up more power converters." And he's like, I never get to go out anymore. <laughs> Disney Plus. We're out of blue milk and the kids are so mad. So Rob then, I mean, you you said this was the greatest movie of all time. You didn't think in any way that there was, because I didn't think that it was too much, but Tyler said, you know, he. There was so much in this there movie. There was so much. Do you think it was, uh, where where do you sit between us? To be perfectly honest, I think it was overloaded. Like there was there was a ton going on, and it was uh, it was hard to track the first twenty minutes of the film. First twenty minutes. <laughs> I mean, okay, the, some some examples. We have both the ex stormtrooper that Finn became friends with, and then yep. Poe's apparently ex girlfriend. And these are two new characters that both get almost no screen time. They definitely get no character development why aren't they just one character? Like, why did we need to just keep dumping on new characters in this movie when the people we've already grown to care about aren't able to like expand the roles that we're waiting to see them be a part of? Like we're still left with questions about the characters we really already developed our emotions for. And they're still throwing new people at us that nothing is paid off with. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's just one example. I don't want to talk you out of liking the movie. I mean, I I I totally liked it. it. it was easier for me to complain about when I walked out of the theater. That's all. Totally understand where you're coming from with that. I think I went in, sat down, and I was just like, okay, I hadn't, fortunately, hadn't seen any trailers. Same boat as you. And I thought, uh, oh, except I caught the Emperor's voice one time, and I was just like, oh. Ah. Come on, guys. Whatever. I got over that. I, I had a year to. It's also the first myself. line of the crawl. So. Yeah, exactly. Oh, the Emperor's back. Oh, well, okay. Well, <laughs> here we go. But I enjoyed the ride of it. I thought some of the. 
some of the threads were brought together nicely. And I think for the bundle of yarn that is the Star Wars universe, what they ended up weaving together at the end was fairly satisfying, given that nothing could satisfy everybody. It was, and uh, I mean, like, I don't know how I felt about like the it's Yoda and Samuel L. Jackson and Hayden Christensen in a voice cameo extravaganza <laughs> where all of the Jedi are showing up all at once. Where have we been? Doesn't matter. Why are we here now? Because force. Blind force. So I, I really liked this film. I thought it was very pretty. I thought it was a lot of fun. There were a lot of really great moments and a lot of kind of things about the feel of it that felt right. And a lot of kind of J.J. Abramsy things that I realize I missed from The Force Awakens. The characters talking over each other, and uh, but all not having important information, so it's just characterization. That, those kinds of things I, I really liked. I found myself surprisingly craving an extended edition where we could slow <laughs> down the exposition off the top and then wrap up some of those other things. Like, I need to hear what Finn had to say. We got, I got to hear it. Yeah, I mean, I could end this by saying some nice things about the movie, too. They really did succeed in developing some new characters that we cared about, which is great. And I think that this brought back Finn and Poe from a place that, I mean, I'd, I really lost a lot of interest in them after The Last Jedi. Mm -hmm. They, I don't know, they were uninteresting. They were a little too dumb in their behavior in that whole movie. Like, just <laughs> mistake after mistake and so many bad decisions. And here they're back being cool and being competent and confident and, you know, just owning the screen and being good buddies. And I much preferred them. as Like, they were great in Force Awakens. I'm glad to see them finish on a high note being great in The Rise of Skywalker. Like I said, I think Adam Driver and Daisy Ridley were really strong throughout. I, I, I love that. So roles. wonderful. Of course, it's just so unfortunate that we didn't have the Leia movie that we deserved. Uh, that was what this was supposed to be. And so, you know, when Carrie Fisher passed away, unfortunately, they had to cobble it together from scraps of what they had from The Last Jedi. And that. But they did a good job. It was of it. what it was. Yeah, I mean, it's an impossible position. Like I couldn't help but be thinking about it the whole every moment she's on screen. I don't know if anybody's Absolutely. not thinking like, just thinking the meta thoughts about it. Of like, what was this filmed from? Which parts are fake? How? Why did they rewrite this? I mean, I know in twenty years when people aren't thinking about the context of timeline of when she passed away, it may may not be as obvious. But it's all it's all I was thinking during, and I think they did as good of a job as we could have expected. Like they they made it work. And I think they at least, you know, honored her in spirit. And it was a fun movie. I mean, yeah, lots of cool stuff. Like things blew up. There's sword fights. It was good. Oh, yeah, man. Lots of good sword fights. And a lot of stuff blew up. And like it blew up and I cared about when it was blowing up for the most part. <laughs> <laughs> for the most part. Well, I guess next time we're going to have to go back to uh, the prequels to keep talking about Star Wars. So <laughs> stay tuned uh, unless there's the surprise movie next year that I don't know, but where, where do you know where this is going, Rob? What's going to, are they really going to end the Skywalker saga? That's a great question. I think, um, they were trying to clear a path for, uh, the Ryan Johnson trilogy, but, uh, I, I ain't heard nothing about that for no long time. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think so either. And, uh, in the meantime, John Favreau's created a, uh, a successful first season of the Mandalorian, which I'm still, uh, as yet to get to the last episode on, but, um, but fun and uh, playful in a way that made me think that he was thinking about some of the things as a fan that I thought about, like, 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 
like where does Boba Fett come from and what's a baby Yoda? <laughs> so I I think Disney has a property here that they want to see mined. Whether they'll try to set up a brand new trilogy or maybe whether they'll try to one-off some of these characters into some side adventures or whatever, hard to say. Well, whatever it is, I'm going to keep buying tickets. That's just yeah, me too. Guys, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Tyler. Thanks, Tyler.